Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm very, very happy to be joined by Pauline Plocan, who graciously accepted an invitation from Amy Lucas to come and do this podcast. So I'm thankful to Amy, and I'm thankful to you, Pauline, for coming and joining us this beautiful morning. How are you? And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're joining us from? Hi, Christian. Uh, I am doing great. Thank you. It's wonderful to share this gorgeous morning. Uh, I am sitting here in my home office in Salt Lake City. I've been uh, working remotely since March 19, 2020. <laughs> and I am uh, running and presiding over my agency, Struck. Uh, which is an award-winning full-service marketing and creative agency. And we're headquartered here in Salt Lake City. Uh, we do have some people coming in and out of the office, uh, but trying to keep it safe during these times of COVID. I'm working on a ton of things <laughs> right now. I'm, uh, we're helping brands become leaders by creating experience affinity. Uh, some of the work you may have seen, um, our Snowbird One Star Campaign, uh, Westminster College and Alta Bank rebrands, the Utah Life Elevated and Mighty Five. Um, and right now we're adapting to COVID-19 and we're working on a ton of brand transformation in healthcare, biotech, travel and tourism, construction, higher ed industries. A lot of people are taking this time to really reinvent ourselves. And that's what we do themselves, reinvent themselves. And that's what we do here. I'm also working with my team on diversity and inclusion and equity for the agency and then mental health initiatives for the agency as well. So my hands are full. And I also volunteer uh, for the uh, Road Home, a social service agency that helps community members step out of homelessness and I serve on the executive committee of the board and I co-chair the communications committee. So that's what I'm doing on the professional side of things. Wow. You have a lot on your plate professionally. So tell us a little bit about personally. I mean, do you have any time left to do things that you personally enjoy or is it all just work, work, work for you, Pauline? Uh, I do have time. I, I really make a conscious effort to create time for things that I enjoy. I actually get up in the morning at five o'clock in the morning and I work out, I move, um, I do some meditation and then I do some journaling and some writing and even a little sketching um, and um, snuggling up with my cat and then uh, reading some books and then hanging out with my husband. Um, that's kind of my morning routine. And then the evening, I love to cook. So I love to kind of make a meal. The minute work is done, just kind of creating something uh, fresh uh, for our family. And then on the weekend, we are outdoor people. So we live in beautiful Utah and I, I have to connect with nature. So in summer, it's hiking. In winter, it's skiing. Um, and then whenever we can, we just go out camping, you know, again, back to COVID, you know, how can we socially distance and stay safe? So we have a, a lot of fun with that. And that has kept me sane. And then, um, of course, a lot of connection with friends and family via Zoom and FaceTime and those kind of things. So trying to keep it um, alive and yet still very safe. Well, very, very good. There's a lot that you said there that actually goes to my little trivia question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you love to cook. Well, that question I'm going to ask has a food element. And you mentioned that you love to be outdoors. Well, on my next question, I'm going to maroon you on an island. It could be by yourself or it could be with your family. Let's say, you know, we don't want it to be too morbid. So let's say you're there with your family. and you, But you can have one meal, one film, and one album while you're marooned on this, on this island. Let's say it's a beautiful island. You're marooned there. You will eventually be rescued. But in the meantime, you've got one meal, one film, one album. What would they be? Okay. Thank you, Christian. I have to tell you, as a French woman and a foodie, that question about one meal is hell. <laughs> 
I um, really enjoy cooking and really enjoy variety, cooking a variety of ingredients. Um, so I'm going to give you a cop-out answer, which is I am going to have a fresh meal of whatever I can find on the island. So that might be coconut, maybe like something with coconut shape, like a coconut curry, maybe a coconut fish and some you know fresh vegetable. If I can find them, maybe I'll have to do seaweed. But that's going to be my cop out. As long as it's fresh ingredients, I think I would be happy as a French woman and as a foodie, just figuring out, you know, I would miss a few things. Of course, I would miss olive oil and butter, but <laughs> I would make do with coconut oil. <laughs> well, maybe there's an olive tree on the island. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You didn't say what kind of an island, yeah. right? It could you be a Mediterranean island. Yeah, you could be on the Greek Isles, right? You, you're Right. So then I would probably have some kind of pasta with tomato and basil and um, parmesan, you know, and olive oil, lots of olive oil. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Let's talk about the movie then, the film. What would you choose for a film? Okay. Well, that's a tough one because I am trying to think about being maroon on an island and it's only one film I have to be watching over and over again. And usually I kind of tend to enjoy like long, like I love sci-fi movies that are like kind of plunge you into this other world, like Blade Runner, uh, the old version, 1984, the new version. But I'm thinking that might just feel a little too dystopian and too depressing if I'm just stuck on an island. So I'm going to go for something fun and hopeful and optimistic. Um, and I would say Shakespeare in Love. It's a romantic comedy. And there is one of my favorite lines of all time in that movie. Um, the theater owner, it's a, in the time of Shakespeare, the theater owner is constantly being pursued and and ask for money. And it's like this one catastrophe after another. And he always has this one line that he says, it'll be all right. It'll turn out all right. And everybody goes, how? And he always says, I don't know. It's a mystery. And I think that would keep me sustained. You know, that would make me feel that's something that would keep my spirit lifted. Like, I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's going to be all right. So that's my movie. Well, that's a great message. I really appreciate you sharing that. Of course, one of the things to think about these days is, you know, we we have films, but there are different forms of of uh, audiovisual entertainment now. And with streaming, I mean, you could choose, and you could you could choose yeah. uh, some kind of series to binge on or something like that. But I appreciate you sticking with the with the old uh, film allegory. I appreciate that. Let's talk about music then, because you could also think about music the same way. Oh well, I have one album, or maybe. Nowadays, I got a playlist, you know, and I could just stream that and that playlist could have 300 songs on it. But if you had one record, one album on the island, what would it be? Yeah, that's a tough one, too. Um, I think I'm going to settle on on jazz and I'm going to settle on Kind of Blue, uh, Miles Davis. It's a very moody album um but i think i would never ever tire of it it's beautiful it's achy and uplifting at the same time um i think that's what i would settle on uh although like you said you know maybe part of me now would prefer just having spotify and be able to just do whatever comes up you know for variety and uplifting but i think kind of blue is where i would i would uh settle on well, I have to say, you've got some wonderfully eclectic tastes. The sci-fi, jazz, French foodie <laughs> girl. This is awesome. I appreciate you playing that little game for us. So let's let's now go back in time to Salt Lake 2002. So you mentioned, I'm a French woman. So how does a French woman end up in Salt Lake City working on the 2002 Olympic Games? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I'll try to make it a, a short story. Um, essentially, there I was in Paris. I had just finished my master's degree in political science, and I was thinking I really wanted to be bilingual to really kind of master English. Um, so I had a friend who was going to UCLA in Los Angeles and was getting a degree 
And I thought, I'll do that. So I, I went to move to LA for, uh, to get a degree in communications. Uh, it was called, um, uh, broadcast print and broadcast journalism at the time, which is funny now to think about it. And in that process, I was lucky enough to get a job right after school for a publisher that was doing books on the Olympic games. And I fell in love with the Olympic movement at that point. Right. And I was a researcher, bilingual researcher. I was writing project managing photo editing and a friend of mine mentioned, hey, the um, Olympic Games into, in Salt Lake City are hiring right now. This was in 99. And it was kind of the spark for me of, oh my gosh, how amazing would it be to actually be on the side of organizing the games? And it was a position in what was called publishing at the time and then grew into creative services. So an internal um, agency. So I applied, they flew me from Los Angeles to Salt Lake city, classic slock, you know, they put all, put out all the stops. And again, it was this kind of, I remember landing and just being amazed by the beauty of the land and, um, really impressed with the team, uh, that was interviewing me. And so they hired me. And so that's how I, a French woman, that's a very short story, Christian, of how a French woman made it to, uh, to Salt Lake City and to the organizing committee. I love the story. What did you think when you first got here? Had you been to Salt Lake City before or was it your first time? And how did you settle in? You know, where where did you end up moving into? And what was life just generally like for you here in Salt Lake? Yeah. So to your first question, um, if I had been to Salt Lake City um, before, I had driven by. So classic French woman in California, I was doing the road trip, you know, going. So I had gone to Zion. I had gone to Yellowstone, you know, just kind of doing the West with my family and road tripping. So I remember driving by Salt Lake <laughs> prior to, and I think it was a day when the lake effect was in full bloom and it was smelling like a rotten egg. And I remember seeing the Capitol driving by. So that was my impression of Salt Lake from those early trips, road trips. Um, so like I said, you know, blending, lending um, for my interview, of course, I was nervous, but I just remember the first thing I noticed was the, A, the mountains, of course, and the sunshine. It was just one of those bright, beautiful bluebird day like we're having today. And, and the air was very crisp and contrast that with Los Angeles, these warm temperature, really muggy, lots of pollution, lots of traffic. There was not a road on, not a car on the road. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this place is beautiful and empty. So this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, people were extremely nice. So those were my first impressions of very nice compare again to Los Angeles, where the entertainment industry kind of creates a little bit of a strange, you know, kind of atmosphere around celebrity and physical beauty that wasn't exactly my, my cup of tea. So uh, it was kind of an immediate loving. And of course, because I'm an outdoor person, just the presence of the mountains so, so close to the city. You know, I remember driving along the Wasatch Front and seeing a, a sunset, I think, and the mountains were covered in snow and it was completely lit in pink and thinking, wow, this is the most beautiful place I have ever been. And I have traveled a lot in my life. I actually not only am I a French woman, but I also grew up in Africa and have done a, a lot of international and global travels. So fell in love with the beauty of the land and the kindness of the people. Well, that's great to hear. I'm still here. So, <laughs> and you're still here. So you must have liked it a lot. Let's talk about settling into your role. You mentioned that you came into the area of publishing later, creative services, as it was titled. So what specifically did they have you doing there? Can you give us a little bit of background 
on the role that you accepted? Absolutely. Yeah. So my initial role was project management for the publishing team, and it was a creative team. Um, We had writers and designers and production designers. And our initial role was really, and then we had also a production, a a printing press, uh, which was pretty revolutionary at the time. We actually ended up being able to do all of our publications and print most of them in-house, which was um, a a really kind of interesting setup. Um, And we had, um, I think at the time, already had inherited our brand style guide from Lendor, an agency, uh, who a famous branding agency that had created our initial, our mark, as you will remember. So our job was really as a team to take that and expand it into everything else that would become the public face of the games. Um, and so that is really beyond the logo. A brand is so much more than a logo, right? It is developing uh, the photography, the video that every the spectators would end up seeing. So the very large print graphic that you saw around town um, were produced by another group called Look of the Game. But the photography, and that was Look of the Game ended up you know, it is where Amy Lucas, where I met uh, Amy, uh, who was on the podcast earlier and, and introduced me to you. Um, but the photography that was on those banners was produced by my team. Um, so that's one example of some of the things that we did. It was a large project. Um, we also then also wrote all kind of guides and what we call marketing collateral. We developed, we were the uh, team that brought on the design for the medals, um, the you know Olympic medals that the athletes ended up having uh, on their neck. And I have a story about that a little later. Um, and also, of course, the torch. So anything creative and fun <laughs> that came out of the games was really coming through our little internal agency. Now we partnered, of course, with other groups internally, as I already mentioned, the look of the game team, um, but also with uh, partners externally. So Lendor was one of the creative agency that helped us with the initial brand. And then we had Axiom Design that we actually recruited for the, the, the medals design and the poster And that's how I ended up with my next job, which we'll talk about it later, but they essentially ended up hiring me after the game. So, um, and then the other piece that we were doing as well, just leading up to the game, um, was also developing a, what we call the ticket campaign. So selling tickets to the public. And then we were working on all of the videos that you would see in the screen, um, during the events. So really kind of branding our, the whole experience. Um, and, uh, finally we were also working on the legacy piece. So with the international Olympic committee, and you're well familiar with this, of course, um, we were working on the official reports and we also, and this was a personal project and a pet, um, project for me, I pitched that we would do a photo book, uh, artistic photography books record of the game. Instead of just relying on the traditional sports photography, we were going to recruit uh, fine art photographers, uh, photographers who would have a little more of an artistic point of view to record the games and the events. And so that's what ended up being a big part of what I did during the games, but also leading up to the games. So that is a very long answer, but our, my job was, I think I was director of of production was really running this creative team and helping us create branded material for the games, leading up to the games to sell the games. And then as a legacy piece for future generation, of course, to remember the beauty of our games. That was a great answer. And I appreciate you giving that detail to us. 
there's a lot to unpack there. One thing that you said that I really liked is that the logo is just a very small part of this thing. I, there's a colleague of mine that has helped me on some branding things for some projects that I've been working on. And he, his comment to me is always, well, the logo's the signature. It's not the, it's not the centerpiece, you know, it's just the signature at the end of your story. Um, and so you just have to have a, have a really nice signature. Let's come back to what you finished up on, which is the team. You're directing this team. You have this production team. You've got different people playing different roles in there and a lot of work to do. So I'm curious, what was the process for you to create and manage this team team, Excuse me, so that you could deliver on so many different items in so many different areas? Yeah, it's a great question. We are, we were definitely, we were an internal team really serving um, all of the departments and that became pretty quickly overwhelming. There was obvious that the needs of the departments and the needs that we had of supporting the public facing image of the game were pretty overwhelming. Um, so we had to make some decisions pretty early on, um, on how we were going to prioritize the volume of work that we were going to come up with and maybe provide templates and provide guidance to some of the pieces that maybe were not as important. So think of it, you know, we had, we were serving the health. I remember, you remember a healthier you 2002, we were supporting um, the national Olympic committee department. We were supporting the, um, the, um, uh, the sports department. We were supporting um, you know, a, a combination of, of departments. And sometimes it would distract us from the bigger stuff that we needed to accomplish. So we devised a system. Of course, we staffed up um, and we had to. And so under me, I had three account managers that were helping us kind of really kind of help us air traffic control, all of these incoming things, all of these projects. And uh, we came up with a way of filtering out all of these projects and deciding which one were going to be priority number one, priority number two, and priority number three. And it just, it was something that made a ton of sense and helped us really kind of decide. And the filtering process was how much of a public impact would it have? How much would the the public see this work. So if the public was going to see it, then that was really our priority number one, right? Making sure that our brand was out there and it was really emotionally connecting with the world, right? Our 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 constituency was the world. And then as we went to the priority two would be maybe internal pieces that would be still have a global impact, like our relationship with the International Olympic Committee or the National Olympic Committee, but maybe not as large public facing. And then priority number three would be more kind of smaller pieces that would be kind of um, um, more internal facing. And this is where we would provide more templates and, and help them be on their way and be independent of us because there was only so much we could do. Um, so that's how we did it. I am a little bit of a tech geek as well. And so I created a database to kind of help us track all of these projects. I was a FileMaker Pro at the time was my <laughs> my database. And so as head of production, I just kind of created this system for us to kind of have it um, as a shared database that everyone everyone could see our priorities and where we were going. And of course, this was with the blessing of Fraser Bullock, who helped us kind of, you know, communicate this uh, filtering system and this prioritization to the rest of the teams, because there were moments where, um, you know, of course, everyone think they're important. Uh, you know, everyone think it's the most important thing on the planet. So for us to say, well, actually, the public facing our job is really the brand and the public facing piece. Um, let's make sure we, we do an, an amazing job with that, you know, with the photography, with the storytelling, with the tagline, those pieces were the bigger emotional pieces. I 
I really like this example that you gave of having these very clear cut, clear cut criteria for what is priority one, what is priority two, and what is priority three. It takes me to my next question. Is there something that was lower priority that maybe you didn't do, but you wish you could have done? Or did you get everything done that you actually wanted to do? Yeah, I I mean, I think we spent a lot of time on certain things um, that I think in the end were really worth it. Um, so I, I, I don't remember the things we ended up not doing. Um, particularly, I don't, I don't have any regrets really. I really, I mean, I think that's one of the hallmark of my memories is that we, we pushed the envelope and we, we were able to, thanks to the support of really leadership, I would say, um, to accomplish these greater things and to have the impact we wanted to have. So I'm really grateful to just uh, the leadership supporting our team in this prioritization. Um, I think, oh, I, I will say something, and this, this is maybe a little controversial. By the time we were really fully moving forward with the brand, certain pieces of the brand had already been done that I think maybe we weren't as in love with. Um, like, you know, and so, and I don't want to say what those are because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings um, at all. But I think in retrospect, it would have been nice for us to be a full team, fully, you know, as part of the brand, be there from the beginning. So I started in 99 and I think some of those pieces, like I said, the logo, we love the logo. It was great, wonderful logo. Um, but there were other pieces that were already in place that I think in retrospect, it would have been nice for us to be even further up and involved further up, if that makes any sense. Because those pieces ended up being very, very visible. And it's just the timelines of the game. You had to get them done um, ahead of time. And it took that long. And and so, yeah, I think my advice to future uh, committees is to have a full brand team or full internal agency um, on board from the get-go, I would say. I, I know the, you know, at least six years ahead of time, you know, I would say. Well, I think that's right. Uh, we do see that a lot in in the more recent games editions where the brand team is brought on at an earlier stage. It may not be fully fleshed out, but at least there's something there. There's someone there inside the organizing committee who is representing the brand. Now, in a couple of the responses that you've given to my crazy questions, you have referenced some stories that you were going to touch on at a later moment. So I want to give you the opportunity to touch on some of those stories. You know, what were some of those things you mentioned, the medals? Um, what were some of those things that you that you had on your list that you want to touch on before we get to your goosebump moment? Sure. Um, well, okay. Like I'll say them in chronological order because I think, um, they're funny, but I think the first story is around just the humor. I think that we all had to have and how grateful I am, um, that we had that humor because it's an intense space. And, um, I think generally the organizing committee was a fun place to, to work at, and our team, particularly because we're a creative team, we were particularly keeping it light. Um, so I remember the very, some of the very first week sitting here and all of a sudden there's a cupcake flying on my cubicle, like landing on my cubicle. And it's one of our copywriter and his nickname was Cupcakes. And that was kind of one of his signature moves, <laughs> just to keep it light. Um, and we ended up just keep starting to keep track of these funny things that we would say, things would get so intense, you know, that some things would come out of our mouths, you know, in moments of desperation. So. One of them, that was one of my quotes, um, you know, we had to approve a lot of work and look at a lot of work and none of it, not all of it was very good. And so, and uh, hopefully you'll forgive the French here, but one of my motto was no montage, no collage, no bullshitage. 
so yeah, it, you know, another one was there is no I in team, except in French there is. So those were some of the things that would come out of our mouths as we would, you know, things would get a little tense and we'd have to, you know, have a little levity in our world. Um, so that's one one memory that I have. Um, another, I mentioned the leadership team um and the support you know Fraser particularly in in um kind of um the this organizing system this filtering system we had for prioritization and um at one of the meetings uh with Fraser and some of the other groups who thought their priorities were crucial but it turned out that according to our objective filtering system they were not and I mentioned already that I'm French. I can't remember what the gentleman said, but I literally banged my head on the, <laughs> on the desk <laughs> in exasperation. And let's just say that everybody got the message. <laughs> and Fraser laughed and we went on with our priority and everyone, you know, it was good humor. Um, but that was something I think that I remember just the support of the leadership when it came to us really kind of putting those prioritization. I remember that moment, particularly banging my head against the desk, which of course now later in my career, I would never do. Uh, but this was just, uh, something that came out, the, the French in me came out. Um, I have to, I have to ask a follow on question there. Uh, what suffered more damage, your head or the desk? <laughs> um, probably the desk. <laughs> I'm pretty hard-headed. <laughs> oh, funny. All right, well, what else you got there on your fun list of stories? All right. Other stories. Um, this was a moment I witnessed, um, again, mentioned how much the leadership supported our brand work. Mitt Romney was very interested in what we did. And, um, and at one point, um, and this is all in, in kindness. Again, he was very supportive. Uh, we got budget. I mentioned the book uh, that I pitched, um, and we were able to find, uh, budget for that. So really grateful for the leadership support. But at one point, um, he got a little bit too involved. And my boss, Libby Highland at the time, literally said to him, Mitt, I'll do your taxes and then you do my creative. So that was a funny moment uh, that we had and he got it. And he was, you know, again, a wonderful leader. And and really, really appreciated that. Um, Okay, let's see. Other stories. Um, I, let's see. Well, while you're looking at the story, I just have to interject with the Mitt story. I think it's super funny. And me actually coming from an accounting background, that's what I did as my profession when I first got out of school. I totally get it. I wouldn't rely on my creative ideas for anything. So I definitely know to stay in my lane and stick with the numbers. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. I, I again, uh, kudos to Libby Highland for coming up with that uh, turn of phrase. And I think, uh, yeah, how do we stay in our own swim lane, you know, but again, so very much appreciated the support of the leadership, uh, was our brand work. Um, I mentioned, you know, I think the Olympic Olympic book, the idea pitching it was a, a big high moment uh, for for me, a, a passion project, and I was completely astounded when we did get it approved. Um, and there was an idea, and I can't remember whose idea it was. It may have been Libby Highland as well, maybe Scott Givens, that we pre-sell the book. Um, so there was an opportunity for uh, ticket holders to actually buy the legacy book while they were also buying their tickets. And that's what we did. And I thought that was a really clever solution. Um, and I thought, um, a really kind of powerful thing to do. And it ended up really being one of the 
I, I don't think there's any other book of that quality out there for the Olympics. So a really, a really fun, a really fun moment and great ideas and a testament to the intelligence of the team that we were in. Uh, and then I, I mentioned the, the design of the medals. So we did a request for a proposal for the uh, medal designs and we um, sent out um, these requests for proposal to agencies around the world, uh, you know, great agencies and received a bunch of submissions. And I remember we had them all. So people would have spec designs, you know, kind of drawing and sketches of their ideas. And we laid them all out on this giant table um, and started to go through them. And there was an immediate one that we were all just completely awed by and drawn to. And we look at it, we're like, that's it, that's the winner. I mean, it was a long process, of course, but this one ended up being the finalist. And we're like, who is this agency? Axiom Design. Oh, um, you know, agency out of LA. Oh, they have offices in Salt Lake City. And they turned out to be an agency. They were literally a block away from us, Christian, a block away from us. Um, so that began a wonderful creative collaboration with this agency, Axiom Design, which I ended up, uh, again, uh, ended up working with after the game. So that was a wonderful kind of flow for us. And they helped us with the torch uh, design as well as the Olympic posters. So a great story, I think, of going global and looking for talent around the world and then finding local talent in the end that, um, uh, you know, helped design the, the, the medals. And of course, uh, we produced them with the help of Ositaner, our wonderful sp sponsor at the time, as you recall. Yes, and we had Katie Clifford, who now works for OC Tanner, on the podcast earlier, and uh, it was great to talk with her. Now, I want to come back to something you touched on very briefly earlier in our conversation, and that was what what life was like during games time for you. So were you just heads down trying to get all the post-games publications ready, you know, getting all those designed the deep, the official uh, book and, and this photo, the photography uh, book and other kind of post games elements. Did you have time to enjoy any of the events? You know, what was it like for you actually working during the games themselves? Yeah, it was kind of um, a combination of the two. So we had uh, recruited 10 photographers to shoot the games in addition to all the traditional journalists capturing the games and so there was a bit of a, we had a system for receiving their film because they were shooting film, <laughs> processing the film. And so we had a lot of backend work to do during the games, but we had scheduled it in a way that our, essentially our team that had been working on all the publications, because there was a fair amount of work to do all the way to the games that by the time the games happened, a lot of us had, it was more of a part-time position. So some of us, I, I had one of my account manager actually ended up being uh, one of the um, mascots. <laughs> and it was a dream come true for her, right? Like she ended up being the bunny. I can't remember the name of the bunny, um, but it'll come back. Um, so that was a wonderful thing. So for me, it was more working with the photographers and visiting um, the games and visiting the venues and making sure that everything was going well, that they were getting the right position and so forth. That in that in in the process, I did get tickets and I did get to attend some of the events. And you know, I remember seeing uh, figure skating and Sarah Hughes. I think I saw her winning performance, and that was really amazing. And I remember the ski jumping being particularly impressive. You know, the a great event to kind of witness. And then I do remember uh, attending one of the hockey games. I think it was also the winning round. I think um, Russia won and it was quite spirited and amazing. It was great energy. Uh, so I, I, I did get to attend some of the games. I was lucky that way. That's awesome. For children who are listening, there isn't a, ma a person in the mascot costume. It's actually oh. a real creature. 
Thank you, Christian. Oh my goodness. I just ruined it. Uh, Yeah. All the kids are like, what? Really? I mean, I I remember um, working on a, on another games and, you know, the logistics that they would go through to make sure that the mascots could only be seen in one place at one time. So people wouldn't be thinking, Oh, what? There's more than one of them. You know, it's all the things that you do to try to protect the innocence of the children. So just uh, pretend that conversation didn't happen. Just cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, do you have any other stories on your list before we get to your goosebump moment? No, I think this is this is a good good amount of stories. All right, well let's get to the let's get to the the creme de la creme here for the Guzma moment. That that memory that just takes you to a very happy place inside whenever you yeah. think about it. Yeah, well, it has to be opening ceremony for me. Uh, several reasons. Um, uh, we obviously this is the moment we had all been waiting for, right? And there was so much tension uh, leading up to it. And because we were creative services, um, ceremonies was one of our sister agencies. So we were very invested and involved in some of the, you know, obviously the kits that you got and and so forth on your chairs and the designs of those books and so forth. And at the same time, we also had all of our photographers there as well. So it was day one, right, of go time. And, um, I just remember being in, um, kind of the suite where all the photographers were getting ready and I, it, it, it choked me up to just see this come to life, you know, and the ceremony was starting to happen and to see all of this work that we all had put in together and it chokes me up today, come to life and come together and all the athletes, the March of the athletes always gets me teary, but I'm like, I cry at commercials, um, just that we had done all of this work for the visitors and for the athletes, and it, it was coming together beautifully. And of course, the culmination for me was when they did the, the 9-11 flag came in and the stadium was completely silent. And... I don't know if it's at the same time, but in my memory, it's at the same time, a light snow started to fall and it was magic. And I think we were the first games that happened after 9-11. And as you recall, you know, we had, you know, it was a lot of pressure. We understood we were going to be the first global game to happen on U.S. soil after 9-11. And so we... I think there was that extra layer of a healing moment, I think, for the world coming together on our ground and mourning those we had lost in 9-11. That combination of the culmination of four years of work and this big healing international moment and light snow coming in, it felt really special, really a unique moment in time. Like we were Things were going to be all right. And we had done our work and now it was time to heal and enjoy our hard work and enjoy and and give, you know, this gift to the world. Well, you're not alone in having that ceremony be a goosebump moment. It was very emotional for for many of us, it was a very, very emotional time, and it was a huge celebration. It was a relief that it was starting. Uh, it was so exciting that it was starting. But for me, another emotional time is when it all came to an end. That was difficult. And I'm curious what that was like for you. And then after the games ended, what was your journey like? You mentioned uh, joining an agency, I think. And then We'll wrap up on this. So I'm kind of lumping this all into one big, long question for you to take us out on. But the games end, your time with the Salt Lake Organizing Committee comes to end. Your life journey continues on. What did you learn at Salt Lake and also in other stops along the way that have kind of served as guiding principles for your life and career that you would be willing to share with our listenership? Yeah, yeah. You're right. The end of the games were just kind of 
really strange, right? Because it was like, wait a minute, all this activity, all this passion, all this drive, all these people, um, and it, it's done. And thank God for the Paralympics, you know, <laughs> we got to, to do a little bit more of that after that. And that was also very emotional and wonderful. Uh, what was unique about the games ending for me is that I did stay uh, on contract to finish all the pieces, of course, because now we had all the photography, we had to write the book, and then we had a bunch of exhibits and legacy pieces to work, the museums, uh, archiving, you know, so some a handful of us stayed on, but we were in an empty you know, we were four or five people in an empty building. And then the last few months were working from home. Uh, so it was, we weren't completely done, but everybody else was gone. And it was kind of depressing <laughs> in some ways. It was, you know, how do you stay motivated and work on it? Um, so that was my post-Olympic, immediate post-Olympic reaction and then I went on to, uh, like I said, I was hired by Axiom to run that branding agency. Um, and that was a wonderful, wonderful transition for me. So a team that I had worked with during the Olympics and ended up coming on board and, and working with that team. Uh, they had clients in uh, in LA, in the entertainment industry, and and really kind of focused on the business of running an agency. So uh, that was the, a career of a lifetime for me. And uh, we then um, emerged after seven years, I think, with Truck, uh, which is the agency that I'm partner and president of now. So essentially, I have made my career in the branding agency world thanks to the Olympics. Uh, if it hadn't been for that moment of hiring Axiom uh, during the Olympics. And it was interesting, and I think that will be my first lesson, but it was interesting for me because it was really that moment of passion and love when I saw the design of the medal that informed my decision to join Axiom. And there were other offers on the table um, in other markets, you know, in Boston and Chicago uh, for other organizations that maybe weren't as creative. And I think your question around what have you learned? And in, I hate because it's such a cliche, Christian, but the first thing I have learned and what I would recommend for those who are developing their career is follow your passion, follow what you love. And I hate it because I used to hear that and I'm like, well, how do I know? I love a lot of things, you know, <laughs> I love to cook. I love to read. I love music. Um, but I think back on my career and it was always these moments of like, yes, you know, this is great. I want to work with these people. This is interesting to me. This makes my heart feel good. Um, to be in that field, to be in the creative field. So I found my way through my career and I'm, you know, in a beautiful position as president of Struck and still working with a wonderful creative team and very happy with my decision of career um, and my decision of staying in, in, the Sol in Sol Salt Lake City, which is also a place that I fell in love with, right? So in the end, I did follow my heart. So that's, Advice number one for your career as you're developing, I think, follow your heart, follow those moments of intuition of, of what lights you up. You know, our motto at the Olympics is light the fire within. It's like, what lights the fire within for you? And follow that thread. Um, so that would be one, one um, advice. Um, another advice, which is related, is nurture those relationships. Uh, those connections, every single um, jobs I have had in my career has been connected to someone who said, hey, the Soul Lake Organizing Committee is hiring or hey, even my publishing job, my first publishing job was a friend of mine from Paris who said, hey, this, this group is looking for someone and you'd be perfect. So you still have to do the hard work of of earning your skills and doing, you know, shine and do the work. But those connections, I think, are really important. And the second piece of advice around staying connected and nurturing those relationships would be, but be specific, ask for help, be specific about what you're looking for. 
you know, so I think this is where you have to do the work of understanding what it is that you're good at, understanding that what you love. And if you're looking for a job or you're looking for a career shift, just tap into your network, but have a clear sense of what it is that you're looking for, because it has worked for me very, very well. Um, even the evolutions uh, of my agency have been through people I have known and connections that I have nurtured, not in a salesy way, just in a simple kind of like get to know each other and understand each other and, and be empathetic and a good listener. Um, and then the last piece of advice I would have on, on future, you know, kind of career, and it's connected a little bit to what I learned at the Olympics is understand value, understand how you bring value to the organization, understand, you know, what is most valuable to the organization, us making that mental shift of what is most important for our creative team at the Olympics was about that. Like what's going to have the biggest impact. I think if you understand how to bring value to an organization, you will succeed no matter what. Well, that's a great way to send us off. And I really appreciate you sharing that advice. And more importantly, sharing these great stories. I really love hearing the history of these games. And I appreciate you coming on our show and adding to that tapestry of memories, as I call it. Now, if people want to learn more about the work that you do with Struck, or they just want to reconnect and talk about Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Absolutely. Um, well, there's so many ways. Um, my email address is always a good place to start. Um, I'll give it to you. It's Pauline, P-A-U-L-I-N-E dot Ploquin, P-L-O-Q-U-I-N at struck.com, S-T-R-U-C-K.com. Uh, but you can also find me on LinkedIn. Very easy. Um, I think I'm, it's under my name, Pauline Ploquin, P-A-U-L-I-N-E. P-L-O-Q-U-I-N. Um, and there's not many of me with that name, so <laughs> you will find me. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. The other channels, social media channels, I'm not as active on. But, uh, but yeah, that's a good way to, to get a hold of me. And I'd love to hear from people and love to talk, talk business, talk games, talk funny stories and, and uh, reconnect with everyone. Well, you say there are not many like you. There probably are no people like you, Pauline Plocan. So thank you very much for coming on our podcast. Listeners, please like and subscribe, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you. Bye.